0: Hello folks, it's Baz here out the Smart Party. A couple of announcements just before we get into the show proper. First of all, apologies for a little bit of sound quality issues with this show. It does sound a little bit like my voice in particular has been phoned in. You might think that's true every week, but this week it really does sound a little bit off from our normal standards, so apologies for that. On a better note, Gaz and I have been beavering away behind the scenes. We're looking to produce our first fanzine, a Smart Party supplement to the show. Uh, We have articles, we've got some reviews, we've got all kinds of good stuff going into there. We're working on that right now. Uh, The idea is to make that available to our Patreons. So now's as good a time as any. If you want to back us for a dollar, we intend to get you some PDFs into your inboxes fairly soon. Um, And at the higher, higher levels of backing, there'll be hard copies for you too. So plenty of stuff coming our backers' way. So please do look out for us at patreon.com forward slash the smart party every little helps and it does go towards keeping the running costs of the show under control so without further ado on with the show
1: hello everybody and welcome to what would the smart party do this week it's special guest time again we've got paul bodowski who some of you may know from uh, all rolled up fame there's um, excellent gaming uh, extras uh, but also he writes a little bit for Paranoia, uh, he's an avid gamer, he's written Cthulhu hack, and all kinds of things. How are you doing, Paul? I'm fine, thank you very much, Gaz. And of course, it can't just be me and him, we've got to have Baz with us as well. How's it going, Baz?
0: It's going kind of right. You don't have to have me, <laughs> but it would be weird if you didn't. I wouldn't know what to do with yourself of, of an evening, so yeah, it's good to be here.
1: Yeah, my, my wife's informed me I have to have you for at least an hour every week. So <laughs> That's
0: right, it's the only piece she gets. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's good to be on. Here good, we good, are. Good to chat, Paul. Hello, mate. How's it going?
2: Hey, it's great. Thank you very much, Baz. It's a pleasure to speak to you both. <laughs> you him
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that means he doesn't have to listen to us if he's speaking to us, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, so I, I think the first thing I mentioned there was All Rolled Up, which is um, a great gaming product that you and or your wife came up with. Uh, And I know that you've got a store like GenCon this year, so do you want to tell us a little bit about that, just in case any of our readers don't know about it, listeners even?
2: Yeah, yeah, Um, so uh, I've been a uh, game master and uh, player for the last 30, 35 years, Um, and in the last 15 years or so, did a lot of events, Um, about that time I got married as well. Uh, My wife's quite crafty, Uh, she's good good, uh, with uh, handmade things, and... um, I think uh, about four and a half years ago, I was quite keen on the idea of some dice bags and she um, she and I basically had a bit of a brainstorm over it. She was not up for the idea of coming up with her own dice bags, but we came up with something just a bit different um, because the All Rolled Up is a dice bag and it holds your pens and your cards and everything. It was kind of like my opportunity after 35 years to say, I'd really like a piece of handmade kit to take with me to events um and so 4 years ago almost to the day i think um we started at our first expo um and um we've been expanding the range ever since after the dice bags we started stocking um all sorts of bits and pieces to go in it like dice and pens and uh, wipe cards which are like mini whiteboards which are really handy for think games like fate and stuff and more recently we've had uh, folding uh, dice trays uh, sort of soft made out of uh, wool felt or uh, neoprene, um, which you can just clip together and use at the table. So we've kind of turned into a, uh, a gamer's paradise for knickknacks and accessories. Um, and as I said, this year, not only do we have UK Games Expo uh, in four weeks' time and Dragon Meat at the end of the year, we've got Gen Con to go to at the end of the summer, and that that's inc- uh, incredible opportunity. 50th anniversary for Gen Con, and we're going to be there slap-bang in the middle of uh, Entrepreneurs' Avenue, um, tucked away in a dusty corner of the main hall. So that would be really exciting.
1: Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure people will seek you out because I know that me and Baz have, have got some of your stuff. In fact, all our gamer friends have. Uh, in fact, it's one of those where they all rolled up. They're not just a dice bug, I think. You can store like, pens in there. You've got little pouches. There's, it's just a nice tactile bit of kit. And I think now a lot of people in the UK are certainly at the point where they're getting several. Because once you've had one, you kind of like want a different design or a posher one or yeah. one for Pendragon and then one for your other games or whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, and as we've gone along, the the materials have gone from just plain fabrics into, well, our most recent one is Irish tweed, um, um, which uh, we already had a uh, Harris tweed um, and then found out the Irish have their own version of it. And so we've made um, uh, some of that line as well. Um, and we have oil skins and the number of people who clearly love and appreciate their dice um, and are willing to provide them with a luxurious home to uh, to live in, um, and uh, it's it's a real pleasure to actually go to any event and see the uh, the all rolled ups and the dice trays sitting on uh, tables being used uh, at, at games. So it's it's very uh, satisfying to see that my wife's handy skills have uh, have seen fruit.
1: I can only suspect the influence of Dr. Mitch, one of our previous guests on the show, for the fact that there's several different varieties of tweed all rolled ups.
2: Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes, Dr. Mitch is very much responsible for the uh, introduction of Tweed, yes.
1: Okay, well, all the best with your your trip abroad on that one, because I know certainly the UK, they've kind of... Your products have sort of like just uh, infested gaming, because I think we're all a bit old now. We've we've got loads of dice, we've got loads of games. It's like, what else can we spend their money on? Yeah, And It's taken over, and and I've had a lot of certainly jealousy on G+, and stuff like that, when Americans look and say, where did you get that stuff from, whenever they see it. So I should think you'll do very well over there. yeah.
0: It's I heard got to be so. a lot better than, a, than what I had been using, because prior to All Rolled Up, I think the first thing I ever put my dice in was a strepsil's tin, which is going some way to show you how old I am. It used to come in a tin, not a box. And that was the least rattly thing you've ever heard, that's for sure. So anyway, it struck me the other day as well. Right, I went camping with my daughter last summer, and the tent I bought was cheaper than the thing I store my dice in. And that's not because All Rolled Up stuff is expensive. It's just obviously I value my dice more than my own family. So, <laughs> when you've got a hobby, you will you will get good stuff for it, won't you? And I, th- I think that's how you know it's a hobby, course, well. because you know that's the definition. I think that's what separates it from a pastime. And um, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be lying if I said I bought a game to go with my old world up recently, rather than used wow. to be the other way around. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think it's all fair enough, isn't it? I know a guy at work who recently spent, I think it was something like 40 quid on um, black tyre polish or something. It wasn't polish, but it was like right. some kind of, it get, to give his car's tyres an extra sheen, it was this 40-pound tub of black stuff that you apply with a, with a toothbrush. It's like, if, you can <laughs> sp- <laughs> if you're can—if you spending 40 quid on black paint for car tyres, then I'm quite sure that anything you buy for gaming is uh, insignificantly costed by that sort of margin, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. But yeah, I mean I mean, how's business been going then, Paul? Over four years. I, I mean I think I got one of your fairly early ones when it was you were just operating out of mail order and the odd convention. But I mean your pe- your schedule is packed now and Phil's probably spending every living moment stitching these things together. Is is business booming? Is it is it growing?
2: Um yeah, no. I I mean uh, when when we originally started, um I think, you know, it was probably uh, the case that Phil thought that it would be a um um a hobby uh you know re- you know an opportunity to make things now and then there are there have been other people who made dice back like uh dragon chow who's over in the states um and you know it was clear that you could make some money out of it but um over the course of the last four years it's she's she's a fully registered uh sole trader now running this business full time so um she she's working you know <laughs> i I would reckon six days a week, on and off, because orders are coming in all the time um, and from all over the world. It's not just, you know, you get the opportunity to see how many people in the UK, for example, have got uh, an all rolled up, but we have customers from absolutely everywhere. Right now, she's upstairs um, preparing a, uh, a delivery to a, a German game store, um, and uh, you know, it's 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 gone moderately global to to the extent that she she's you know she really can barely keep pace with it and we've had to go from in the in the old days at the beginning might have said there was a a few days turnaround in terms of you make your order and you get the stock if it's not made right now she can't do that she's we're looking at two weeks three weeks if something's not in stock and ready so there's that much demand for the for the uh the all rolled up and that's that's really great because it, it you know she has a genuine business to uh to, to keep her busy during the day um and the night often. Right. And right now it is day and night because of Expo and Gen Con. So uh um it's very much a case of uh, yeah her being really busy. So it's great.
0: And uh, oh, last sorry. time we we hooked up I mean briefly at Dragon Meet didn't we and I hooked up with, with you and Phil and we were um you were telling me that you've got some stuff for Dracula dossier and I think um Maze of the Blue Medusa as well, and it's getting more and more bespoke, I suppose, isn't it? So it's, it's great to see you having connections with some of that stuff that the, either of our listeners might be used to. Well, I mean, um,
2: it's, uh, it's a case that, as we've gone on, I, I was told we, we were at the student nationals in Nottingham um, a few weeks ago, and it was pointed out to me by several people that Phil is easy, easily the greatest networker they'd ever seen, She will not. She will talk to everybody in the room, you know. um, And at Expo, she will give it a a damn good try to actually, you know. Despite the size of the trade hall, she will get around and talk to people and root out possibilities. So, um, as you said, we, you know, we. I think in the first year, um, going to events like Concrete Cow in uh, Milton Keynes. Uh, which is also attended by Cat uh, Tobin and um, uh, Simon Rogers from Pelgrane Press, for example. They had a chance to see the product first hand um, and made us aware that they were going to be running this Kickstarter for uh, Dracula dossier. So it was, an, it, we actually spent something like six to nine months. It went from the Concrete Cow all the way through the conventions during the year of 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 Cat and uh, Phil getting together and sort of swapping notes and looking at fabrics and um it was really interesting to see them working together um and i managed to get a bit of writing work out of it as well um but um it, it, it by the end of it we had you know the kickstarter where there were uh a um uh of these all rolled up specially made for the kickstarter and then after that there's been a, an ongoing uh request for, for more of the same so we had to ask to to be able to use the design ongoing so uh um, it's been it's been interesting to use those opportunities for, uh, um, as I said, my wife networking and being able to expand the business and our reach all the time.
1: That's awesome stuff. I mean, <clears throat> do, do you think that I don't I don't know what I want to ask there, really, Baz? But I think it seems like it's just a really good success story that if you've got if you build something that you as a gamer want. And, and it isn't out there that it's quite easy to transfer that into getting other people to want it as well. You don't have to do that much marketing as long as you've got something that people can see the value in quite easily. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like I do, at one point, yeah, yeah, yeah I do. Hey,
0: I mean, it's, if if you've got a passion for something, I think now more than ever, it's it's the golden age of the self publisher or the the craft operation that kind of stuff. You know, and uh, it is is easier than ever. Although I wouldn't take away from the hard work it also takes to make a real go of it and certainly to make a living out of it because that's a different thing entirely that's another level um but you know i wanted to ask paul about some of the stuff that he's done with cthulhu hack and some of his other writing as well because if you've got a passion you'll get an audience i i can just see that and it almost doesn't matter what it is or how niche you might think it is either that there are people who will snap up the stuff that you just put out there whether it be on the internet in pdf or whether it be you know an actual item that you unroll at your gaming table i think i think there's a there's a mass of gamers who wanted more stuff and more content
2: yeah i mean with 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 all rolled up on the when we um as i said we started just with the dice bags but our our, our mantra so to speak has always been that we make a product that we would use at the mm. table ourselves, we don't sell anything on our stall that we wouldn't we wouldn't actually use. So, for example, as you said, we've got the dice bags and we've got the dice trays. But for example, we sell some some dice as well. And there's there's often I I hear some feedback from gamers sometimes that dice manufacturers can get a little bit carried away with their their twirly filigree and patterns around dice (laughs) so they get to the point where you can't actually read the number. They look fantastic, but you can't tell whether it's an eight or a six or something. Um, And, you know, so we will stock the dice that we can read sort of thing. You know, (laughs) we we won't stock something that we wouldn't actually use just because it's there. We won't put it onto the table um, because we hope as a result we can be more enthusiastic and energetic about actually uh selling it to the gamers because we know it's useful um Mm -hmm. rather than you know if you if you're selling something that you have no commitment to and no belief in it's 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 a it it kind of you lose the energy behind it and the the people you're talking to can see that it's just you know it's it's not the same experience for them, and I, I think we would. you know My wife's business would be far less, less successful uh, if we didn't have that kind of commitment to what we sell.
0: Hmm. No, yeah, true. Good who, who knew a game of the imagination would require so much physical kit? <laughs> Thank goodness.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you, you touched on Cthulhu out there, Baz. Um, I think it's one of the things that we've looked at. Uh, so, for me personally. Uh, I'm pointing to Cthulhu 7th edition at the minute. It sort of fixed a lot of the problems and in inverted I've had with older editions of, of the BRP type systems. Um, but obviously uh, you, Paul, saw something that you wanted to do a bit different and your Cthulhu game was perhaps different. I'm assuming, just riffing off what you just said there, saying that you would you'd make something that you would use. So is Cthulhu hack born out of uh, you don't fancy the typical Cthulhu as it stands, and you wanted to do something a little bit different. Or, what what was the genesis of that game, and what, what are you getting out of it? Do you think? Um, I
2: think I. Um, there are a lot of rule books for role playing games to the, these days, and they have been for a long time. It's not just not just today. Because I'm, I'm, I can see a copy of Champions across the room, and it's a good inch <laughs> thick. And I've seen exalted exalted third edition and the damage it could do to a skull if you hit somebody with it. So. Um there are a lot of very thick rule books. Um and yes, Call of the seventh edition does fix many things, but it does it in a somewhat verbose way. Um there's a lot of content in that rule book. There are um, a lot of words. Yeah, there are a lot of words. Um and um I think last year and, and, and maybe for the last few years, there's been this movement towards much uh much slimmer volumes that get you um the structure for a gaming experience in far fewer pages. And you uh, you touched on it with Into the Odd, for example, which is a very slim volume which you know you, you, you manage to get a good experience out of, despite the fact that it it has you know it's it's a sliver in compared to the likes of Call of Cthulhu or Fifth Ed D D. Um, uh, but you can still get value out of it, and you still have a, a certain gaming experience that comes out of it. And so, early last year, David Black came up with the Black Hack, which was a, a, a view to making the fantasy experience accessible by keeping slimming the rules down um, in the same approach. And I saw, at the time, having finally got my copy of 7th edition Call of Cthulhu, I actually started modifying the rules pretty much before my physical copy arrived because I found they were still just a little bit heavy duty a little bit cumbersome and I already wanted to start slimming things down and hacking bits off so after reading through the PDF I was already making changes and I thought to myself what what am I doing why why am I doing this (laughs) Um, and um, so I wanted to I think what I realised is I wanted to have a, a similar experience where I could take the absolute essentials of what Call of Cthulhu is all about uh, right down to the level of um, um, but take it all the way back to Lovecraft himself where where it's mostly about misguided people who get messed uh, mixed up in terrible situations probably due to a dead uncle who left them some book or something in the attic um, and over the course of the story they get deeper and deeper into the situation as their fascination draws them in their curiosity carries them until they probably find themselves in a cave where they realize that yeah their grandmother is a shog off or something um, and so at heart it's about the threats to your, your sanity and your physical uh, well-being uh, and that that process of investigation and really that's the two mechanics that Cthulhu hack presents as the core of the game. Beyond that there is there is really nothing else. It's very slimmed down. It deals with threats, it deals with the resources of investigation and sanity and beyond um, that and character generation that's what you get inside the 44 pages. Um, in, in fact right now I'm kind of doing a semi-rewrite with the intention that I'll have like a edition one and a half ready for Gen Con. Um, because it, it occurred to me that I, you know, I wrote the original in a month uh, last year in April and released it in May, um, and I've I've run it dozens of times, and I know I've got friends and I've seen other people running it, and so I've got feedback on it, um, and of course the 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 feedback uh, from 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 Baz and yourself uh, when you uh, when you touched upon it. So yes, the encumbrance rule is gone. Um, and as <laughs> as as are as are the random encounters. So, um, but yeah, I just wanted something that was slimmed down, um, and enough, uh, and it's it's turns into the my go-to for running Call of Cthulhu, because, not Call of Cthulhu, but that sort of adventure, because I can pick up a Call of Cthulhu or a Trail of Cthulhu or any of the other varieties, and run it with with negligible sort of uh, preparation. You know, I, I just if if i know the adventure i can just run it from what's in there knowing what sort of investigation you're doing what sort of threats there are and there's very little time and effort because there is no time after all to do all that prep we don't we don't really our lives are busy and uh you know the opportunity to uh, spend a, a week getting ready for an adventure rarely rarely crops up if ever so
0: that's really interesting i was um i was having a discussion with some new gamers that I've met, new to me, they're not new gamers at all, they've been playing role-playing games forever, and uh, one of those guys has picked up Call of Cthulhu, and he's picked up 7th edition, because it's it's new, and it's out there, and it's kind of like the launch point, and um, I don't have it, and I'm not, I'm not here to rag on it at all, but he has, he's explained that he finds it really intimidating, he's never played Call of Cthulhu before, but he's heard of it, he wants to do it, he's really struggling with just the sheer amount of reading that he feels he's got to do. To, to get it. Um and I know it's the seventh edition and I know that you know there's a there's a kind of a vast corpus of of Cthulhu lore, but I was kind of surprised. I've not seen it myself, but I, I really thought there might be an easier in, and it occurred to me you guys might know better, I think you know more about this than I do. Is has there ever been an introductory or starter set for call of Cthulhu gaming of any stripe outside of what you've just done, Paul? And and I don't think you bill it as Introduction to Lovecraft, do you? But it, it, has there ever been like a shallow box with a couple of dice and some pre-gens and and a slim down thing outside of like Quick Starts? I don't think there has.
2: That that well, outside of Quick Starts, no. I I would have to say I was I was impressed by the Seventh Edition Quick Start, which mm. came out long before Seventh Edition was actually available, um, and it presents a a slim down overview view of the rules, with an explanation of new things like the luck and pushing your role and so forth. Um, and if I rec- uh, recollect correctly, it does the haunted house, which is the classic Cthulhu scenario, um, which was what I actually used for playtesting Cthulhu Hack because it seemed like you know if I can run the the classic Cthulhu scenario, that you know that it it must you know it it should work, um, and that actually. I, I recommend that to anybody who's who comes to me saying that you know if if they're determined to buy all the cthulhu rather than the cthulhu hack, and you know it, it occasionally happens, um, <laughs> I would actually I would actually recommend to them to download what is a free quick start and look at that first and go through that because I think there is I don't want no, it's not going to do chaos amount of any of its sales but I think they're genuinely put. A little bit of a sales killer in the quick start, if you know that it's there, because it really does. If you if you're familiar with any other previous version of Call of Cthulhu, or you just have a read through it, there's there's enough in there to to play and run the game. And I think it's a really effective quick start. And I I commend them for actually putting that together. It's very good.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I agree. In in the few times that I've run Call of Cthulhu, and and I've run a few, it's always been published adventures. And uh, I'll let you into a little secret. I've run published adventures for Call of Cthulhu with no access to any Call of Cthulhu rulebook of any sort mm-hmm. because yeah. the published adventures seemed to me to be quite easy to run out of those pages, given that it was all based on basic role playing, percentage dice, skills, etc. There wasn't—I—I I, I couldn't imagine what was in the rulebook. What, once I had a copy of Master or in front of me, that was—that was enough. Um, I've probably missed loads of nuances and cool stuff, and. And the character generation perhaps but yeah it was the adventures for me were like you know almost like reading a novel out and then improvising around those and um, i've always struggled to imagine what's in a call of the game maybe i should buy one <laughs> you are you are miss you're
2: missing out on a on a uh a 10, word chase chapter that's what you're Whoa, missing out on
0: that's what i've been looking for chases have never been done right
1: <laughs> well to be to be fair i think that for me, anyway, they're one of the strengths of Call of Cthulhu has always been all the adventures and the packs and scenarios and the, the sources, material that's out there. The, the rule book, really, was always secondary. I'd make it tertiary if there's something else other than that. But, you know, it's, it's the setting material that's always been really well written and good. The actual BRP book, for me personally, anyway, hasn't been all that inspiring. It was just our, our set of rules to run your Cthulhu games with. It was the, the additional material, like the haunting, that initial scenario, that's the really good stuff.
0: So is that where the Cthulhu hack comes in as like a power for your gaming shelf? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I mean, pick it it, up and it, run.
2: after I released the Cthulhu hack, pretty, so I've got ai run a few blogs as well as the the Iron Pact. Um, and one of them is the Just Crunch uh, site, where, uh, which is kind of my umbrella for any of my writing. Um, and the first, um, the first article I ran on there pretty much was my, I gave a breakdown of how you convert the haunting into a Cthulhu Hack adventure um in the simplest way possible it's basically it pains me to say it, it's a, it was an excel spreadsheet um which kind of broke oh. broke the broke the plot down into like a, a set of squares that uh, interlink and connect and you can follow the squares across the page and each one just has a a brief explanation of the scene uh, what you can find there if you investigate either in Cthulhu hack you either investigate with flashlights which means that you're looking for things or smokes which means you are asking uh, for things um, and it just explained in each section which wh- where the clues were and if you got them or wh- where they would lead to um, uh, in the simplest way possible with the idea that that was a, a, a solid introduction to anybody who'd pre- played Call of Cthulhu in the past to understand how this much simplified version of a role-playing game in Lovecraft's universe could take the same material and, and, and work you know, straight off straight off, off the page without you having to do a massive amount of study. You could just take an existing adventure and reuse it with the system with no work whatsoever.
1: Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Um, so you mentioned the Iron Pipe brief, so we'll, we'll swiftly segue across that. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to go do the part of the, the yeah. podcast I want to try to do tonight is... Um, the, the Swedish games, much like Nordic Dewar has taken over our television with things like The Killing and The Bridge and all the rest of it, it seems that the, the Scandinavians are in, producing lots of games as well. I know that Baz has looked at Mutant Year Zero. Uh, I've been having a look at the Future Loop, uh, and you're a fan of Cimber I believe, which is what the Iron Pack's about, right?
2: Absolutely, yes, yes. And I'm I'm invariably going to mispronounce the uh, company that makes it in Sweden, the ja- Jarnringen, um... They yet yeah, they they seem to have been behind a whole lot of uh, games. At least the writers in there you, you mentioned, like I think Mutant Year Zero, a version of that or something. Some of the writers on Symbrum worked on that. They seem to have quite a tight knit community in the uh, in the uh, in like Sweden and so forth who are actually the uh, the sort of key key gaming writers. So there's a lot of overlap between the uh, uh, between the content.
1: Yeah, they they seem different styles of games, but. Um... I think it's fair to say, both our listeners will agree, that when me and Baz looked at Simbroom, we weren't exactly uh, overwhelmed by it. Uh, I think there's probably, it suffered from that a bit of bloat for us, and that there's too many words and not enough good stuff in there and all the rest of it. So I know that you're a fan. Um, so what, what's what's good about that? Just taking from what you've said, sort of, about Cathelia Hack, for example, where you were looking for something minimalist and easy to get through and you could just get game in. Simbroom seems like the, the complete opposite of that, and it's quite dense and has loads of history and stuff. So. How does that excite you? Whereas perhaps a Cthulhu book wouldn't, for example. Um, I yeah, I would say
2: exactly the opposite about it. It, it is, um, uh, it's not as dense as books that I've tried to plow through before. It was a bit slight. I have to say, it was a slightly strange experience for me. I'd seen they uh, because it was it's been released in Sweden for a year or two, and they wanted they did a translation. I saw it being funded on Indiegogo, and um, I was tempted because w- one thing you can say is that it they do do gorgeous books, um, oh, yes. you know. Absolutely. Um, in in Absolutely. fact, it, it seems that everything comes coming out coming from that direction is it just looks fantastic, um, whether it's Tales from the Loop or Coriolis or uh, or Symbrium, um and and many others. Um, so it was that that caught my eye initially, and. I, I kicked myself now, but I didn't back the Indiegogo. And it, it, it funded and everything, and eventually I picked it up soon after. Um, and when I got it, um, I read far too many books. I've got stacks of uh, to read books, you know, piles and piles around the house. And I have to say, when I originally started reading it, I probably wasn't in the mood for it for some reason. But um, I think sometimes when you read a book with a lot of background at the front, uh, if you're not in the mood for it, you're not in the mood for it. I'm, eclipse Phase did exactly the same thing to me. It's got like a hundred pages of fiction at the front and background. and it just oh god, it just it, I was just not in the mood. So with Simbrum I actually read the, the the book backwards, not literally, but I I went from the I went there's an I went through the adventure at the back to to get a gist of where they were going with the, with the game. Um, and to, to, to get a, a, a sort of um, uh, a ready feel of what, what was in mind. And I could get immediately that there was this situation. So you've got um, a, a country that's been ravaged by war and the, the people have been forced to, to migrate to the north um, and there's hardship and there's yeah, darkness and despair and so forth um but in the midst of this there's you know there's hope and there's uh, there's you know p- people who are desperate to to please their queen and expand the kingdom again and as i worked backwards through it so i went from the the adventure through the bestiary um through things like uh the game master's guide and uh into things like character generation it just began to appeal to me more and more and when i finally got to the background that had put me off at the beginning a little bit um there is on On one page, about twenty pages in there's a timeline um and I don't know what it is about timelines maybe it's just me, maybe there are other people, but when I see them in books i Tolkien would be a prime example. The Lords of the Rings can be a real scary book, but if you flick to the back and you look at the timeline, there's something really engaging to me in actually looking at how people have broken down the development of you know how civilizations have clashed. It's always it's always about battles and com, you know confrontations between the dwarves and the elves and whatever else. And there is this this little timeline, and for some reason that grabbed my attention, um, and I began to latch things off that timeline. And I could see while the game itself is set uh, right at the end of that timeline, when the the land that they've uh, the uh, Queen Corinthia and her people have uh, have moved into has been uh, it 's been twenty years since they 've been there. I could see potential for adventure all the way through right the back right the way back to the start of the timeline because it was full of conflict. There was a point at which the queen had been kidnapped, and I immediately saw the potential to see uh, a whole campaign of adventures working out how to rescue the queen from her captors. Um, you had the idea of uh, the Forest of Davakar, which is this great, dark, brooding forest that lies to the north, which is full of barbarians and trolls and uh, elves. Um, but there is very clearly some uh, some even darker, deeper, darker secret, which is where the name of the game comes from. The Simbrum Empire... Uh, a group of sorcerers who were around a thousand years before the game started and they did something really bad so bad that the elves and the humans at the time got together and made what's called the iron pact to basically seal the uh what the sorcerers did away and and, and to my mind um maybe I'm reading into this davakar is almost like a, a band-aid it's a sticky plaster over a well of corruption that was made by these sorcerers um and it just i don't know it just je, uh, i don't know whether it was my unconventional approach to it from going back to back to front but it it then caught me utterly and now you know a year on i've written a 100,000 words worth of additional sort of original material on the iron pact um and uh i have uh, le pacte de la which is a french translation of the uh, the iron pact and i'm currently talking to uh, some german gamers to uh, get it translated into German though I haven't decided exactly on the name of the site there or whether the translation of the Iron Pact is uh, ideal but um, <laughs> it's, it's it's been a really interesting experience
1: Awesome stuff, I might have to try that, I didn't think about reading it backwards but that's something you discussed before isn't it, but as you said you've sometimes got the back and looked at the adventure or the character sheet as, as your first point into a new game
0: Yeah, yeah every time, I do, and I do it Yeah, every time, it's um... It never ceases to amaze me how often that works. It's a really cool technique, and I and I suspect if I'd tried that with Simbrium, it might have worked. And the only reason I didn't is because my copy of Simbrium is on PDF. I know if I'd had it in a proper old school hardback book, that's exactly what I would have done. And I, the first thing I look at is a character sheet because I think that tells you a lot about the game. And perhaps unsurprisingly, Simbrium is a really pretty character sheet. It's 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 like it's designed by IKEA. It's really functional and simple and beautiful. <laughs> and um funnily enough i looked at the adventure today uh promised land is it called yeah 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 it's got a great setup um it mixes in a bunch of other stuff as well i mean i just thought it looked great and i wish i'd done that and i think sometimes jumping in with both feet into the middle of a big old history is a bit intimidating a bit overwhelming but certainly some of my favourite games ever. is I've read it, I've read them backwards. Um, I did it with Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, way, way, way back in the day, which I think, I think to be fair to Simbra, and there's a lot of links between those games. Actually, talking about giant forests and mainland Europe, and it definitely it owes a debt for sure. And and the old world, as it was for Warhammer, could be a very, very big, intimidating canon <laughs> with one end and two ends, funnily enough. Um, so. I found that one just Jump into the olden Harle contract way back in the eighties. Yeah, I mean, there's been yeah. a bunch of games like that, you know. And any of the White Wolf games would be another great example. You want to skip that opening fiction in all of those games so if you value your own sanity. I would have thought.
2: Yeah, but yeah, I, sp- so I suppose a bunch if, of games. Uh, if you think about it, actually, um, for anyone who's run games or played games at conventions. Um, it, it kind of makes sense. Your introduction to a game, often you'll go to a convention because you've heard about a game and you will play an adventure because you want to see what mm-hmm. it's like. So it makes sense that reading the adventure is, is the equivalent, really, of getting that experience of what the game's about. You don't expect when you walk into a convention uh, room to play the game, that the GM is going to sit smugly at the end of the table, throw the 400-page rule book down in the middle and ask you to read through it you know have a skim and then we'll uh, we'll start when you're finished you, you know he doesn't hit you with the mechanics um you know as a as a you know sort of a mother load of you know learn that and then we can get started um it's the adventure that you're there for and it's a, it's a, a, an interesting way to see where the creators are coming from um in terms of where they see the game is because yeah the 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 fiction can off, can get a little it can be it can be too much it's in, and you know um it might just be like you know watching lord of the rings instead of reading it i mean you know it's mm-hmm. it's, poss- it's it's possible that somebody who's seen it you know lord of the rings might actually be encouraged to read it because the book itself is going to you know put you off if you see a thousand pages sat in front of you so it may be similar um you know just reading the adventure getting involved in the in the heart of what the game's ultimately going to be about
0: i can't I can't stress enough how central to me having adventures for a game line is really important. Either something that's going to be published for me that I can pick up and run or a game that gives me the support so that I can write my own stuff because that's where the game actually happens at the table, playing with players. Um, Not necessarily sitting there on your own having lonely fun reading what what could be an overpriced novel. Uh, A background is something I want to go to after I've I've read the action bits and and how it all works and got some gaming out of it and and I think sometimes well I, I guess there's another podcast in games that have supplied great introductory scenarios in their books but it might not be a very long podcast and and I think there's a real there's a real art to to doing great adventures and I think I was listening to Robin Laws once, either at a seminar or a podcast, and I'm sure he said while you're designing a game, try designing an adventure for it simultaneously or in advance of it, whatever, because if you, that will help you design the game, because the idea then of running it is front and central in your mind, um, and you might find that it helps with that. And It certainly helps me when I'm reading, because what I want a book to do is I want a book to be my new best mate who's having a cup of tea with me and making me excited about the games that we can play and the book needs to talk to me like a fellow GM and when me and Gaz talk about games and we pitch stuff to each other for when we're going to get together and play we really don't start with a you'll need to read this hundred pages of stuff no matter how good it is that's never going to happen we talk about like the cool things that we could do and what the rewards are of play, and like you know where the challenges are going to be at, and its level of crunch and, and adventure will show you all of that.
1: Yeah, you guys have obviously never been to IndyCon when uh, Souls Calling, Rondi Fray, running because uh, at one time the game sign up sheet for that literally had sixteen page handouts attached, and the the GM insisted that you went you took one of these away, and read sixteen pages of rules before you turned up for the game. And then you can bet characters when you got there, and then you can play again.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I, I did
1: did have a forum chat. Did have a forum chat with a guy to sort of say, I don't think generally this is how we do things in the UK, but you know you might want to. But he didn't listen. I think one person did actually read the stuff, but that was yeah. I think generally you're right. We 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 don't want all that front loading if we can avoid it
3: the smart party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show we use patreon which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming to show your support just to head over to patreon.com slash the party you can donate a dollar a credit a copper piece or a fiver per month it all goes into the portable hole of web hosting costs, and helps us look after you every month with new smart party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the smart party at Patreon.com today, and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers!
0: What else have we got out of the Swedish guys? What's Tales from the Loop looking like? Because I followed the Kickstarter, um, didn't go in on it on the end for one reason or another. Because I, I know th- I was attracted by the artwork. Like I'm sure many of us were, and and the serendipity of coming out around the time of Stranger Things. Um, it all looks like a perfect storm of of some more Scandi gaming goodness. But damn, that's a fine looking set of raw books they produced. Does it does it bear up in real life?
1: Uh it seems to. I've I've not actually got the physical copy. It's landed at work today, so I'll I'll pick it up tomorrow when I when I go in. So but I've just been flicking through the PDF. And it is indeed a lovely. Um the the artist I'll obviously pronounce this wrong, because one of the letters has got a like a no over the top of it. Um so <laughs> I don't know I don't know what that means. means but I'm gonna say Simon or something of that nature. Uh, I'll I'll write his name properly in the show notes afterwards so people can look him up. But yeah, all his stuff's amazing. Uh, And it looks like it's got that kind of half-finished concept art look to it, if you know what I mean. So it looks like a bunch of concept art for cool stuff. Um, And even baked into the game itself, it does take one point. Like the first thing to do when you get your players together uh, and, and it goes through the steps. And one of them is... Get get all Simon's art out and all look at it together. And that's like you know, <laughs> it's part part of your setup for your game, you should all look at these pictures and go like they're cool and give you ideas. So the the conceit of the game is it's set in the eighties and it's a little bit like if you watch films such as Stand By Me or I guess uh, The Goonies if you wanted to go really gonzo, but I think that's probably a little bit too over the top for my tastes. Um but it's that sort of like kids um <coughs> excuse me. Um, trying to solve some mysteries. And that's what they call adventures in the game, is mysteries. Uh, And it's kind of science fiction-y. So there's these uh, magnetrine freighters, these floating things. There's robots, there's dinosaurs or other creatures might pop up. But there's two locations it gives you. One's in Sweden, and then it also gives an American one, in case people don't like Swedish stuff. But there's some big scientific device that's been built up there. And out of there or around it, weird things happen. And it's up to your kids to solve these kind of problems. Uh, and it has all kinds of good stuff in there. There's, it looks like it's nicked lots of bits from the games. The system at heart is very simple. You roll a bunch of D6 equal to your skill, and if you get a 6, that's a success. Uh, and if you don't, you can, you can potentially get conditions, like you're upset or you're tired or you're hungry or things like that. So that sounds a little bit like you get conditions in D&D, but more applied to children, if you know what I mean. Um, and you kind of got a mix between your ordinary lives uh, and the mystery and doing cool stuff. So... Um, you do things like, first of all, you, you set up a scene where you just say what you do normally. It might be like doing your homework or playing D&D like the kids are in the basement at the start of Stranger Things, that kind of stuff. Um, and there's a really good thing about then when you move to the mystery of saying, like you know, parents aren't going to help you, and really they're just going to get in the way, or other adults like police won't believe you, and your mum will make you try and stop and do your homework rather than go out because, you know, there's a skated android that you need to rescue or something like that sort of nature. So uh, lots of different bits and pieces in there about um, like drawing maps like crazy, which I think have been nicked from other games. And it's clearly from a bunch of guys who've played quite a lot of stuff and then taken all the best bits and stuck them together for something and try to support the sort of game that it's about. So it, it looks beautiful. The, the art layout's great. Uh, all the graphic design. Uh, the system seems set quite simple, quite lightweight. Paul like it. Uh, and it's, it's set up for doing the things that it says the game's about. And um, probably the best bit about it is when I thought, oh, is there an adventure in the back? It turns out the back third of it's adventures. There's like wow. you know, a couple of hundred pages uh, and sort of 70 of them or something or mysteries. And another good chunk is how to make your own mysteries. So, you know, roughly speaking, half the book's about this is the stuff you'll do when you play this game rather than talking about it or trying to describe things to you. Really good bits of kit, I think. Um, so, yeah, well, well worth a look. And it's got that same sort of thing that Paul was talking about earlier with um, having the clues together in little boxes. So it, it's kind of got six phases to um, each mystery. You'll introduce the kids. You'll introduce the mystery. Then there's a bit where you solve the mystery, and that involves clues. So there'll be like clue least 1 leads to 2, leads to 3, and goes to here or whatever else, a little map to show where your clues might lead, uh, and then a showdown, the aftermath, and then change at the end, which is uh, another good bit about it there. Is it sort of mentions how your kids... Might have changed, or you can change your relationships with people, or things like that. And XP is the very last bit, but that's a sort of a side note compared to everything else. So it's it's clearly a game about playing kids solving mysteries, and very little about the mechanics and spending XP points to do things. Uh, and cause so much of it's about adventures and doing. You know, these are the things you do. I think it's um, it's a really nice piece of work.
0: So I presume, Paul, you'll be starting a blog about this to go with the other twenty five that you've got going on. Over there. <laughs>
2: I, I okay. I must admit, it's on back order. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I didn't go for the Kickstarter either. Um, but yeah, when it came up on uh, on Modiphius's website, um, I yeah, I, I might just have swooped in there. But it is. Uh, it, I guess it's been popular enough, but that they ran out of copies. So uh, I'm 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 waiting for my copy to come through because I'd seen the art in the past. The the artist didn't he do a like a coffee table style book or something yes. in the past. Um, and I thought the the art was gorgeous then, and that it had it just felt like it was crammed with potential. Just seeing these pictures of you know kids wandering through a field, and there being this this uh, sort of RoboCop style big you know robot in the middle, you know like the the one at the end of RoboCop. And it was kind of like you know where where would that go? What's happening? What you know? It was it was yeah. It, as I said, it's like the art in Simbrium where the more i look at some of the images the the more i see the potential for um for using them for adventures and and what's actually in there actually draws you in as a gm and 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 i i absolutely love the idea of being able to i of of showing players you know some of the um the atmospheric you know sort of giving them the sense of what it's like what the adventures like you know what the world is like in a nice picture there are some games that throw images at you occasionally that since since D and D was originally around they used to get the handouts at the back of the the book which you'd you'd diligently cut out ruining its future resale value um and you know so you could present it to the player and it's just in a development on that that uh, you, you know it, it's it's there's a richer world out there that you can present and it's it's just interesting that so many of these scandinavian games are just crammed full of this gorgeous artwork
0: mm. Yeah, I mean it. It is really, really good, and the Simbrium stuff, even on my PDFs, it 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 pops off the page. Even though it's kind, it's kind of like you know, washy and watercoloury and mm. uh, it's um, it looks beautiful, uh, and I think it's really evocative in the literal sense of the word. It immediately evokes uh, adventure ideas, and and that's that's amazing. You know, the picture tells a thousand words, but some of the pictures in there are just outstanding. Even if they're not like high on on detail, it allows you to fill in the blanks as a reader and as a GM. Because when you are GMing, no matter how good your descriptive flavor, your descriptive capacity is, your players are only ever getting like an ink wash of what's actually in front of you. So it's a really good medium for role players to give them a kind of blurry picture. Because I think role playing is made up of the bit that that you invent yourself in your head where it comes into resolution. It'd be different for everyone around the table. So evocative stuff is is sometimes more useful than a catalog approach of this is exactly what it's like. Here are some blueprints. Less of that and more ev- evocation. And and that goes to, to Paul's point about adventure plotting as well. I mean, I was doing a and d dungeon last week and I wrote it as a flow chart instead of on a graph map. And it worked better for that <laughs> because yeah. you just need to evoke the dungeon and the the decision points and where things are in relation to each other, actually having people map stuff out square by square just seems a bit a bit hard work these days. maybe I'm making too much of it extending the analogy too far but uh, but I kind of like it when there's something left to the imagination, and the Swedish stuff does that and fires you up for more imagination
2: and and I don't know whether it's maybe the way I approach games when I'm reading them and my willingness as I said you know I was tearing apart Call of Cthulhu by the time I got the PDF and already turning it into you know fiddling with it I like, I like you know sort of taking a game and, and breaking the, the mechanics apart and, and so forth but possibly because I read it back to front and I wasn't exposed to the that 70 pages worth of background I felt a certain confidence in in having read the system which is to my mind relatively simple uh, to understand mm. um and it meant um by the time i reached the background material i i had a confidence about how it slotted into the the setting um and therefore i i immediately felt this need to put other other ideas out there other types of abilities characters spells and so forth and It's slightly, it frustrates me a little when I see people asking questions about any game where it feels like they are worried they might tread on the cannon with one end. That somehow, if they run the game not exactly like the author intended, he's going to come round and he's going to bang on the door and he's going to give them a stern telling off. and you know they're not enjoying the game because they, uh, as much as they they should and and could, because they seem to think that they're going to offend somebody. You know, so there are there's a, you know there's a game police out there, um, and, and there's not. And and it, it it I I think that because these games are so rich with their pictures and their and and their potential that they they should and uh, you know allow you to to develop so much more and have such you know, richer games um because the the mechanics almost take a a step back as he was saying with tales from the loop if all you're worrying about is rolling sixes and the system pretty much hangs off that then you can concentrate on the game you're not there's no there's no bother there um um i think that's a nice a nice touch with these uh, the the games that seem to be again coming out of the out of the northeast at the moment <laughs>
0: Mm. Yeah, it's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, I suppose my contribution to the Scandinavian role-playing discussion with Mutant Year Zero, which sure enough it it has it has a setup, it has a bunch of situations, it's a post-apocalypse. Uh, it's been described to me before as Fallout, the role-playing game, and on my limited knowledge of Fallout, I'd say that's probably pretty much bang on. But um, there's very little canon, which is a good thing because the point of that game is to go exploring. Um, and to find out what's out there and and in some ways to invent what's out there too, and it's it's got map packs that are great big, almost blanks they're still beautiful because it's Swedish. I've never seen people manage to make like you know a big blank area of wilderness look so gorgeous with a grid on it, but they really do look good <laughs> It's quite incredible um but yeah absolutely and and I mean, to your point on on people stepping on Canon Paul, I mean, I think sometimes that's. That that can be a bit generational, depending upon you know the decade where you found your feet as a gamer. In the 90s, which is a decade me and Gaz often talk about on this podcast, it was the decade of Metaplot, and it was the decade of collectible settings and supplements and all the rest of it. And and even you know the God's Own Game Earthdawn uh, suffered from. I'm not too sure what I want to do in this city because there will be a supplement out for it fairly soon, and it would be a shame for like you know my thieves guild to not exist because somebody built a skyscraper there. So you know I I think that depends. I I'm not sure there's been too much of that stuff recently. Or maybe I've missed it. But definitely games from the 90s really really suffered from that. Or you could see it as a feature, I suppose, if you like just reading books instead of playing them.
2: I mean Sim, Sim at the moment, the design team behind it have got a seven part campaign mapped out yeah. of which they have Wrath uh, of the Warden was the first part of it and they've just done the um, the kickstart of, of translating the second part because all of this is, has been out in Swedish six, nine months ago and they, they then progressed to translate it um, so they, they have a lot of canon in mind um, but there is a, a box text in the book that says if you kill somebody You know an NPC, and then you read one of the later chapters, only to find that we've made that character a core part of the adventure. Adapt, make it. You know your your campaign will be different, and there will be other people. You know, as in this. You know, if something happens to the the president or the prime minister, someone will step into that role. If somebody, you know, it's the world goes on, and just because in the in the core. Uh, campaign it says that you know a certain individual is in the role of the head of the church of Prios in in Simbrum. It doesn't mean they have to they have to be there if you've run your campaign and you know as is often the case, the players have gone completely off kilter and gone completely against every intention you ever had, and they've broken into the the church and they've gone and killed the head of the church. Just adapt it. Someone, <laughs> someone else will step up. Someone else will lead the religion, and you can. You, 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 don't need to. You know, worry yourself that the next five parts of the campaign are now non. You know, a non-starter because you've gone and killed the main character. Just you know, it's, it doesn't. You know, it's it's not fixed. As I said, there are no game police who are going to come round and punish you. <laughs> I
1: think it's just that some people seem to have. They want to know what the official answer is, though, don't they? they? They kind of, it's not that they can't think of anything. They just want to know what, because they like what they see and they want to know what somebody else thinks of it. Do you know what I mean? They want someone to tell them what the secrets are. And they're like theorizing about it and coming up with um, ideas. I guess it's like lost the TV show, which the, the writers themselves eventually admitted that they had no idea what they were doing. They were just making stuff <laughs> up. which which was hilarious. It drove me insane because I wanted to know what was going on and could see how things should have developed or what I would do if I was in charge sort of thing, and that's how my role-playing campaigns might go. But I think equally there's a segment of society, and there is in the gaming community, of people who want someone else to tell them what's going on. They're happy to theorize about it and come up with ideas about what might be happening. But until someone official in inverted commas tells them, they don't want to commit to it. I don't know. But we're all just making stuff up.
0: You know. Yeah, I see that. It's and it's interesting as well. Like in, in all of the examples that we've been banding around with each other as well, the, the the thing that comes immediately to mind about derailing somebody else's plot is like somebody gets murdered, which is definitely the case in role playing games. Like you know, <laughs> I'm going to kill the wrong person. Um, but you know, if Game of Thrones has taught us anything, is that a good story will survive multiple deaths. You know, spoiler alert, <laughs> but you know, you're, Paul, you're quite right. Somebody will step in to fill the void, and and that's when it becomes fun because then it's dynamic, isn't it? And I think you know I, I've suffered from this as well. To Gaz's point, I've I've not started campaigns because I was waiting for almost permission to go, and that's a terrible thing to do. You know, game game today, uh, adjust later, because you know life's too short. You know, just get stuck in, grab a call book and go. I wish I'd I wish I told my wallet that back in the nineties, <laughs> instead of <really laughs> filling up my shelves with what what felt like you know. Supplements that were also permissions to have a game. Ludicrous, really.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking at you, Exalted. There's, there's one of those things that the, <laughs> the Nexus source book, which is this city that's the middle of everything, and there's this weird council, and nobody knew what they did. And the secret was when you bought the source book, you uh, can be anything you want it to be, you make it up yourself. And you're like. Oh, <laughs> Well, I could have done that without buying your source bug, to be honest. <laughs> and you waited. And from that point onwards, I, I did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I waited six months for that. Do it yeah. yourself, mate. All oh, right, Thanks. Yeah,
0: true. But as
1: you, as you said, Baz, actually, maybe it is a
2: generational thing. Because, yeah, I was gaming in the 90s as well. And there were a lot of licensed properties around. Mm. Just not hoping not to go completely off-kilter here. But you had Star Wars, Star Trek, Doctor Who... Uh, um all sorts of uh gaming properties and potentially the games companies that produce material for that either did it really well uh, as in you know Western games who are now cited all over the place as being um integral in the development of some of the background that's now appeared in the you know later movies it, they, they mm-hmm. were so influential um and then on the other end of the spectrum you have like yeah fasa with uh, star trek and um doctor who who ended up losing their licenses because they uh, they went too far over uh, you know out of the the, the comfort zone for the, the 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 companies that were offering the license but there was that willingness to 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 even you know in the published material to not 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 be too concerned about the canon and and maybe that made it easier for you to um you know uh, have a lightsaber duel with Darth Vader and not really be bothered that you actually killed him and uh, n- now you know now what's going to happen who's going to you know who's going to bring balance to the force now that you've done that um oh sorry that was a spoiler maybe but I, um and um <laughs> you know so i, I maybe it, yeah maybe it is a generational thing that in the past there was less concern you know the the licenses were more free and the canon was a little easier to uh, to work around um, but
0: yeah, there there were an awful lot of licensed games. You're quite right, and and it wasn't just the games. Then you had to like pay attention to what's going on in the movies and the books and the graphic novels and even the action figures, for goodness sake. But you know, even even the games that weren't licenses, I'm thinking of you know Deadlands and Seventh Sea, Legend of the Five Rings, Brave New World, uh, all, all of the White Wolf books. Um, they, they they, just, you know, the, the splat books that came out for them. It took me absolutely ages to realize that a game designer supplement is simply somebody else's campaign. That's all it is. It doesn't mean it has to be your campaign. It's just what they did with the rules that, and it wasn't even necessarily the same person who wrote the rules. It was just, it was their campaign. And it had a, it has as much value at your table as you want it to have. Um, but at your table, it's obviously your campaign, um, and, and and I wish I'd cottoned onto that a bit earlier, really, rather than slavishly trying to, you know, uh, run my finger along the lines of somebody else's campaign and trying to keep things on track. That's you know, that's a fool's gambit anyway, given players, isn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, in in a way as well, a lot of those splat books or extra things you buy can be a little bit like DVD extras in terms of the movies, the cinemas, often kind of like the best version it's going to be. And then you buy the extended edition and you've got 15 minutes that aren't quite as good. So if you've got a good core <laughs> concepts and book, you know, quite often when you buy the splat books or something, it's like extra options for your thief, but actually the good ones were in the main rule book. And that's why they're in the main rule book.
0: True.
1: And the, the others have been chopped out because they weren't quite as good or tight or didn't fit the thing. So it's, it's all like extra stuff, which is nice if you want it, but Let's face it, the core concepts are, are per, normally pretty tight on it. Hmm.
0: Cool. Okay, guys, so um, I'm I'm conscious of time. Um, so I think you know, in, in the interest of of, uh, of of getting things wrapped up and, and passing it up all nicely and wrapping it up in an all rolled up, putting a ribbon around, <laughs> sliding a little card in the side of it and calling it done. Um, what's for the future, Paul? What's next in your endeavours? Uh, you'll have another blog started by the time this comes out, I'm sure. There'll be some more Gen Con prep you the yeah. from the loop again. What's, what's
2: going yeah. on in your world? Uh, well, yeah, you're right. Yeah, there's a blog. I've set one up just now um, <laughs> uh, because I I, um, I recently got a hold of the new version of Paranoia. Having written for Paranoia XP in the noughties, I've now got James Wallace's version of Paranoia and I've started digging into that. And I have a blog called The Omega Complex, which looks at new and old Paranoia and tears it all apart. Um, we have got Gen Con, so as I said, my... Uh, my wife is working full-time on that um, and uh, producing as much stock as possible for Expo and Gen Con while I'm trying to pull together a, a, uh, a revision of the Cthulhu Hack book. And I've got, um, I'm have got i working with two other writers, John Almack and Richard August, to bring together a book of scenarios for Cthulhu Hack as well. Um, so it's all busy, busy, busy. Good Lord.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I had James Wallace's paranoia once as well, but I took some medication for that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's when thing, people were threatening to throw things at him at Dragon Meat. I think. <laughs> he would, it's not something you want to catch, is it? No, 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 no. <laughs> no.
1: It's not kind of paranoia; they are actually out to get you. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: right. Okay, cool. Well, listen, mate, uh, Paul. Thanks ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, you know, I, I know you've been a long time supporter of the show, and we really appreciate that. And it's lovely to have a guest on who's who's actually busy playing games and making stuff for it instead of just yakking about it like two old codgers in the background. So, more power to your elbow, sir. More power. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, well, thanks
1: very much, guys. Uh, If you've got any questions for us, for Paul, anything like that, drop us a line, give us a comment. We always like to hear questions from both our listeners.
3: You can get in touch with The Smart Party via your favourite electronic means. Look us up on the forums where we're just about everywhere, or you can simply email us at thesmartparty@hotmail.com. Your comments, insights, questions and revelations are always welcome. More diplomacy.
1: Uh, I'll try and put some of stuff, pull stuff in the show notes, but uh, there's probably a word count limit, so I doubt I can fit all (laughs) the things in there. But I'm I'm sure if you uh, hunt about on that there internet, you can find him on Google Plus and uh, various other places as well. So uh, thanks very much for listening, guys, and uh, we'll speak to you next time.
0: See you soon.